Let us pray together. Dear God of grace and truth, we thank you that because of Jesus we know that we may come before you and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, the one who comes to guide us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we need your help this morning. Come to us, we pray. Amen. So it's been quite fascinating and uh, a little troubling to be reading the headlines these past few weeks with a sermon on truth and truthfulness in mind. Our president, I read this last week, has now spoken over 4,000 documented lies, fabrications, and misleading statements since he took office. A significant number of Americans still persistently deny the reality, the truth of of climate change, even as fires rage, even as sea levels rise, even as temperatures increase. Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago one of our nation's most influential megachurches, is right now in the midst of scandal and meltdown because of the untruthfulness of their senior pastor, Bill Hybels. And this has led him and the whole elder board of that church of 25,000 people to resign. And let me just mention that Bill Hybels had a big impact on my life I read one of his books where I think the title was Who You Are When No One's Looking. Who You Are When No One's Looking. And here in Pennsylvania, of course, this past Tuesday, a grand jury says that the Catholic Church has for for decades been following a playbook for concealing the truth. A playbook for concealing the truth about abuse by priests. And then here in our own county, we continue to learn about the massive fraud that led to the bankruptcy of Worley and Obitz, a local energy provider, which has rippled into the life of our own congregation. One of our own losing a job, another person needing to do a lot of work on this case. And so we have to ask this morning, as some are saying, have we entered into a new era of post-truth? Or does the Bible show us that today we are simply experiencing a struggle? A struggle about whether to seek the truth or to disregard it that has been common to all of us human beings since the beginning of time. You know, though our story today about King David and Bathsheba takes place 3,000 years ago, I believe it's a message that is still timely and relevant and needed 
as much today as it was back then. And as we heard, it begins all one spring when King David sends his men off to battle, but himself stays home in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon, he goes up onto his palace rooftop to watch the sun beginning to set, to paint the city's stonescape with its fiery colors of red and orange and gold. And it's then that he hears the sweet sound of splashing water and singing, and it draws him to the edge of his roof. And down below, he sees a woman bathing in a nearby courtyard, a woman, by the way, of astonishing beauty. Now here, David could simply return to enjoying his sunset. But he doesn't, does he? Instead, he immediately sends someone to go make inquiries. And he soon learns that she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers at the battlefront. Now, after he learns who he is, King David could just say to himself, Uriah sure has a gorgeous wife, and God bless them very much. But he doesn't say that, does he? Because you see, here in Jerusalem, King David is not only the king, he's also the commander-in-chief, the head of police, the chief justice, all rolled into one. He has the absolute power to do absolutely whatever he wants. As our current president once said, when you're a star, you can do anything. And so God, or so King David now sends messengers. Messengers, maybe armed guards, to go get his subject. After we notice all the power dynamics in this story, thanks, I should say, to female commentators and female theologians. The male theologians and commentators missed this for 2,000 years. We discover the truth that this is probably not the story about a seduction, probably not the story about an adultery, but rather about assault. And it all sadly ends later with Bathsheba's distressing three-word message to David, I am pregnant. The only words we hear her speak in this whole story. Now here... And I want you to notice all the now here's in this story because I'm trying to show all of us that moral catastrophe rarely just suddenly happens. Instead, it begins with one sinful choice 
Not rejected, but chosen. That leads to another one, and to another one. It begins with the embrace of one lie. That leads to another, and to another, and then requires an even bigger one. At this point, our dear King David could still confess his sin, squarely face reality, and begin the long, hard work of setting things right. But he doesn't, does he? Instead, he hatches a paternity cover-up scheme. He summons Uriah back to supposedly report on the war and then orders him to go wash his feet. A euphemism for him to go and sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. But to David's dismay, Uriah sleeps outside his gate instead. Come on, Uriah. But Uriah is an honorable man, and he asks himself, how can he and his beloved go make love when his comrades are out battling enemies and wild beasts on the front? And so the next day, next night, David has another scheme, another plan B, getting Uriah drunk. But that doesn't work either, does it? Now here, David could still come clean, but the truth is getting more and more painful, isn't it? And so he plots murder instead. He sends Uriah back to the front carrying his own death warrant. Did you notice that? He's carrying the note to tell General Joab to put him in the most dangerous place in the battle and then to draw back, which is what exactly happens. And after that, after Uriah is killed, David sends for Bathsheba a second time and makes her his wife. Now, in all of David's scheming, he has forgotten about Yahweh, the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. God, we learn after our story today, is greatly displeased, greatly grieved by what David has done and sends Nathan now, the prophet, to confront him. Nathan tells David a distressing story about a powerful man who steals his neighbor's only lamb. David's anger is kindled, and he shouts out, That man deserves to die! And Nathan then says to David, You are the man. You are the man. You are. He is you. And it's now that David finally learns that he does not actually have the power to remake reality however he wishes. 
No king can defy reality forever. No president can disregard the laws of gravity forever. Every high flyer will eventually come crashing down to the earth. Amen? And here I can still hear the words of Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar at a pastor's conference 15 years ago, quoting Psalm 1, verse 6, The way of the wicked is doomed. Let's say that together. The way of the wicked is doomed. And for the vulnerable, for the Bathshebas in our world, that is good news. For those who seek and love the truth, that is good news. The arc of the moral universe, Martin Luther King said, is long. But friends, it bends inexorably toward the justice of God. And so in John 8 today, we hear Jesus say that the truth will set us free. The truth will set us free. The Greek word here for truth is aletheia. It means disclosure. It means unconcealment. And was sometimes used to describe the unveiling of a statue. As Christians, we believe that God's truth has been unveiled for us and most fully embodied in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Three weeks ago, in an editorial in our local newspaper, LNP, Pastor Charles Oberker, a New Holland pastor, said something that I've been wanting to preach on ever since. So this sermon has been brewing for three weeks. He said this, Jesus came to reveal reality at its deepest and truest level. Jesus came to reveal reality at its deepest and truest level. Let me spell that out a bit as I understand it. Jesus reveals the reality of a God who is love. Jesus reveals the reality that we have been made to freely share this love with God, with each other, and ourselves. Jesus reveals the reality that every human being bears the precious image of God, even our enemies. 
That we, as we heard in Ephesians today, belong to one another as sisters and brothers, that we are woven together in an inescapable, inescapable network of mutuality. And one more, Jesus reveals the reality that truth has a twin named grace. And with God, these two twins are inseparable. Grace is always on hand to forgive and heal and empower us to live into the challenging truth that Jesus has revealed. Oberkare, Pastor Oberkare, adds that wherever these deep, deep realities are present, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is deep reality. Maybe this is why Thomas Merton, the Catholic contemplative, once said, to seek God is to seek reality. And friends, here at East Chestnut, we want to be a community seeking and telling reality, speaking truth, getting real with one another about our lives, about who we are when no one's looking, about our church, about our city that we love, about our nation, about our world. Didn't Clara Waybright wonderfully model being truthful, speaking truth to us last Sunday? She showed us that being truthful is not just not telling lies. It is that. But it also is trying to accurately describe what is happening in our world. And with her help, we got a better glimpse of reality in our world right now. The thing is, is that truth isn't something that God just gives to us all the time at once, fully formed. Sometimes God wants us to discover the truth and to nourish and nurture in the truth in one another. Our ability, you see, to see the truth, even to want it, is so partial. And we sometimes need one another's help to overcome our own blindness and self-deception. I hope it wasn't anything I said. (laughs) Sorry, Samantha. All right, let me share a personal story here. 
In case you missed it, just that last sentence. Our ability to see the truth and even to want it is so partial that we need each other's help and support here at East Chestnut to overcome our own blindness and self-deception. So a couple weeks ago, my daughter Jasmine confronted me after she heard me say something misleading to a neighbor. Parents ever had that happen to you? It will. (laughs) Now here's the thing. It was a true statement, but it was untruthful. You know how we can do that? We can get real wily. It can be truthy, but not truthful. Amen? Since then, I've been pondering my habit. And this is a professional problem, especially for pastors, of trying to remold the truth in order to make myself look a little bit better and a little less human than all the rest of us. Sometimes you even want me to be better than you. Then it gets really complicated. But this is to deny reality. That I need God's truth and grace in my life just as much as you do. And since then, Jasmine's truth-telling has been helping me to feel a little bit more free just to be my true self with her and with you. Let's return to King David's story. After Nathan's confrontation, King David could have ordered him to be killed, just as he ordered Uriah to be killed. But he didn't. Instead, he is finally cut to the heart and confesses the truth to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Because to sin against our neighbor is to sin against God. And now we discover why King David is so beloved by God. Indeed, after why he is a man after God's own heart. Because in spite of his terrible sinfulness, assault, conspiracy, murder, David in the end has not lost his spirit of correctability before God. His spirit, his willingness to repent. This, by the way, is the only time in our whole Bible that a king, when confronted by a prophet, ever genuinely repents of his sin and turns his life back toward God. The only time. So friends, where do you find yourself in this story today? With David? With Bathsheba? What is your own relationship with the truth? 
confession and truth-telling are God's powerful antidote to the deadly virus of lies. What does confession look like if we are David? It means confessing our sin the way that we have harmed and tried to live, harmed others and to live against the grain of reality. What does truth-telling look like if we are Bathsheba? It means taking the big risk to name the ways that someone else has deeply hurt us and sinned against us. For David and for Bathsheba and for all of us, it means finally bringing all that we are, everything we have experienced, into the healing light of God. Amen.